All right, you are listening to WMUA Amherst. You're coming into the second hour of the Barbarian in the Valley show. And that means that we're coming into coherency. We're leaving all of what's been done before. I disavow all of it. I had nothing to do with any of it, in fact. And we are in the crystal ship, and we're hovering over the Connecticut Valley. The beautiful view. I want to give some apologies to the valley because a couple of weeks ago, the crystal ship stopped thunderstorms and rains from coming into the valley, which felt like the right thing to do at the time. But biking in over here and seeing all that dried up grass, it makes me feel bad for stopping that rain. So today, perhaps we'll bring the rain. We'll bring the rain. Get this valley a little wetter. Now we're going to have a conversation. It's such a pleasure to have uh, with me three former students. Actually, not not every one of you guys were in my class, but two of you were. And we, Elena and I, have had many conversations over the years. And Elena's already been a guest on the show. And we're going to be talking about the culture on campus around free speech as much as anything else. Um, we have an article. It's actually on the website, barbarianinthevalley.com, if you want to go right now and read it really quickly. Although I think some of my guests would be like, don't bother. It's terrible. Why did you make us read that, Cody? But um, we're going to come around to it. I want to let you guys know that our call-in line is 413-545-3691. Anybody can call in. Guardians can call in with embarrassing questions. It doesn't matter. As long that's this is a free speech episode, so we're not going to tell people that they can't call in. It's just not going to happen. I'm not going to do it. So just that number again, because my wife tells me to say it three or four times. 413-545-3691 is going to be the call in today. Uh, 413-545-3691. And, you know, we're going to be talking about free speech today. We're going to be talking about kind of uh, culture on campus. And so I just wanted to remind everybody out there that today is a holiday, actually, right? And we actually, there's some town around here that has a big festival for this. It's Bastille Day, right? There's plenty of French Canadians in the valley. I don't know if it's Chicopee or something, but there is a Bastille Day festival. Hatfield? No. Oh, you've been to it. Okay. Okay. You're French. Okay. There you go. He's got French blood. I actually found that I had French blood, much to my horror. My 23 and me. I never thought I would be a Francophile, but it actually makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of French stuff about me that everything's lining up. But in terms of free speech, I think it being Bastille Day is actually really relevant. And in terms of speech on campus, it's relevant. These Bastille Day and July 14th, whenever. <laughs> And I'm a history teacher, so I probably should know that. 1789, isn't it, guys? Let's just say it was 1789, folks, and just move on. July 14th is when they took down the Bastille, and that moment was this really wonderful moment of euphoria, and part of the goal of Bastille Day was to bring free speech into France. And then, of course, the revolution happened, and with the revolution, there was also the Reign of Terror, where the same revolutionaries who wanted free speech started to curtail it, right? But seen in the larger picture, right, the French Revolution was definitely a force for good, even if it had its moments of inflammatory guillotine type stuff. Okay, I'm getting some head nods here, but that's when we'll come back to that. There's a very famous anecdote about Zhao Enlai. You guys, Zhao Enlai was a Chinese, he was the first Chinese premier, I believe. And in the late 60s, he was asked, what are you, what, how do you think the French Revolution changed the world? And Zhao Enlai said, too soon to tell. Can't tell. We don't know yet. Although now I actually read about it. And apparently he might have been thinking that the interviewer was talking about the late 60s Paris protests. So not that we don't know anything, right? That's my new mantra. I don't know anything. Don't ask me. Your guess is as good as mine. 
Jeremy Whalen is landing somewhere, so he's about to get into his orange van. We expect a call from him at the very least. These are three, like, students that just worship Whalen, right? Isn't there a level of worship of Whalen? Oh, you know, I'm always surprised because I always think people just worship Whalen, like he's just the coolest guy. But maybe, maybe I'm cooler than Whalen, right? I don't know, it's hard to say. Uh, it's hard to say. All right, listen to a little music. We'll come back with our guests. We're coming back. We're actually with our guests now. They were all, I have to say, everyone wasn't just on time today, really early. In fact, Henry, you were so early that it, it scared me. It almost surprised me in the vestibule. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Well, I wanted to prepare, so. That's good. All right, so let's introduce ourselves. Go ahead. Hi, folks. I'm Maddie Tacey. I go to Mount Holyoke College. I'll be a junior this coming fall, and I study politics and sociology. Future senator. Perhaps. Hopefully. Um, I'm Henry Higgins. Uh, I'm a student here at UMass Amherst, a uh, rising sophomore. Um, I study economics, um, but my primary interest has been social psychology. And um, going to college right now kind of feels like living in a case study. So yeah, it's, it's been pretty cool. I think that is true. And yeah. I actually think that however else we feel about what's going on, mm -hmm. it is a really interesting time to see power move. Like everything seems like it's on the surface. Yeah. Like, there's not a lot of, like, there's a transparency here that if you're interested in power and politics, it is at least interesting. But there's also a Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. Have you ever heard that curse? Like You gave me that on my last day of high school. Was that my, like, Written you know, down, see, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's basically, if you really are mad at somebody, I wasn't mad at you, and you say, well, may you live in interesting times, meaning, like, you'll find out. Okay, and Elena. My name is Elena Fragamini. Um, I'm a rising sophomore at Mount Holyoke College. I study politics, journalism, and hopefully French, so happy Bastille Day, everyone. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Is that yeah. new that you wanted I'm to do I'm attempting French? to learn. Okay. I'm attempting to double major with French. Excellent. Um, but I could fail, so okay. we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. But it's, you guys are very switched on. I've always enjoyed our conversations over the years. And I invited you guys because of your level of thoughtfulness. And what we're going to be talking today about is, like, it's a sticky, tricky issue, which is about speech on campus. Let me just talk um, and set up the article. And then we can... We can talk about it as much as you guys feel is relevant. Uh, I did want to do an assigned reading. It gives a backbone to the conversation. And so I chose a Tom Nichols article from Atlantic Magazine. I don't actually know him that much. But it was, I think, um, in response as much as anything to the pressure that Camille Paglia was having uh, down in Philadelphia by the student body, who was upset at some of the student body was upset with her and calling for her removal. But the article kind of from there kind of ranges around a little bit. And seems to be, in a general sense, about, uh, I think Nichols might say, students should not run the university. Like, we don't want students running the university. Is that a fair approximation of what he might say, do you think, or do you guys want to add to that? No, I, I would say that's a fair okay. approximation, yeah. So, Elena, before the show, you, were, you had some issues with the article. So, 
Talk to us about that. Yeah, so my biggest issue with the article is that I think that in some places, um, Nichols conflates students advocating for a... um, a safe and happy and educational experience um, with protests and repressions of free speech. So one example of this is Nichols is pretty harsh um, on an instance at Middlebury College where students advocated for, among many things, um, improved health care for trans students. Um, and Nichols' claim against this was that this was too expensive for the college. Students should not be running the university. Um, and for me, I am just baffled that um, Nichols would, would claim to be against students asking for what they need, mm-hmm. particularly in an instance of health care, um, particularly in an instance of a typically marginalized community. Um, I, I think it's, it's baffling to extend the, um, the worry about repressions of free speech to students should not have a voice in their university, yeah, um, and, it, and it's a it's a gray area, um, but I but I think it's important to make those distinctions. Okay, cool, Henry. Yeah, so I think the issue that I have um, a lot with with the argument about student agency is that often I think students use their agency um, to make demands on behalf of others. So I think I think students organize and. Um, I think I think they make proper requests of the university, but I think they they often make um, demands, and I, I don't really think that's agency. Like there's no there's no responsibility um, that the students bear um, when they make demands strictly of the university. Mm-hmm. Like there has to be there has to be some give and take from both sides. Okay, and it, it's just an interesting point here. I mean, to back up Elena a little bit, if I could. Um, you know, if the administration doesn't want it, then they have to present and push back, right? Because this is where the lines can be drawn. If the administration, I, I don't think you're saying that anything people ask for, they should get. You know, if it's too expensive, you have to take a utilitarian view. Like, well, that means that our financial aid is going to go down. It's going to affect you, you more than anyone else I know are really interested in policy in that way. And so, and I think one response to Nichols is students should be able to advocate as much as they want. You know, but the administration needs to, they need to show up and then push back. Maddie? Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I totally think that students need to have a voice. However, I often have this trouble with that college is really a temporary thing for us. So, yes, I will definitely carry the name of Mount Holyoke with me throughout my life when I'm going to, you know, going on to different jobs or going on to different experiences. When I look for the alumni network, that kind of thing, Mount Holyoke is definitely like a big part of who I will be in the future. Um, However, on campus, I'm only there for four years. So, and I recognize that, and I think a lot of people don't. And the thing is, is that there's a lot of people coming in after me who will have to bear these new things that students demand. So I think that what Nichols is really saying is that, yes, it's important for students to have some sort of a say, but administration needs to have a backbone and they need to say yes or no. Um, And then I think that they just, students can't run the university simply because the logistics of it is really important for students to, for the university to be long lasting. Right now, we're in the moment, and so a group of students currently right now might make something up, and or not necessarily make it up, but kind of make a deal out of something, make a protest an event or something like that. Um, but that's good and all right now, currently. 
But when you turn that into policy that's long lasting, that's where it becomes difficult to deal with because students in the future can suffer from well, that. That makes sense. And also uh, students prior too, because Correct. there's the reputation and brand of your school that you carry, right? Like that mm-hmm. means something. It's interesting that Hampshire College is having so much trouble right now. This is a little different. But if Hampshire College seeks to exist, then that diploma becomes compromised. Uh, exactly. It's just a side note, but Elena? So I'm just a little, like, kind of to talk about the point you just made, Maddie, a little confused about what you mean by future students will have to bear the changes that are made. I don't think there is anything wrong with a college adapting to its current student body and offering additional services, hiring faculty of color, making sure our colleges are inclusive and um, accepting and accessible to all. Um, that doesn't hurt other students. That well, makes the school better for other students in terms of increasing diversity, increasing um, a place for them there. I'm not sure what you mean by future students will have to bear the changes. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that one size doesn't fit all. So you make a change today that might not be positive tomorrow. Um, so that's kind of, and I don't think that any of those things that you just mentioned are bad and they definitely don't hurt the environment and they're working to make a more inclusive environment. But there is a need to understand that students, that the university has to protect what it stands for. And it, that's like a, usually like a historical thing, right? So like Mount Holyoke has a lot of traditions and values that it holds closely, which you definitely know. Um, and then if we go ahead and try to change those right now, then that changes the face of the university. And that can be, that can be troublesome. Right. I agree. I think, I think, I mean, it is a balancing act, but I also think it's a moving target. So I think that's what's happening right now with universities is they're going through a bit of an identity crisis, mm-hmm. um, with, with what they are in relation to society. Um, so, I mean, it used to be you go and you get a four-year degree and you join some corporation. Um, but now uh, things are shifting and the ground is shifting underneath college's feet. And I think they really need to be careful um, because I think they're backing themselves into a corner that they won't be able to get out of. Um, if they continue to make changes, not make changes, but um, offer, I don't want to say this, but offer degrees that are economically obsolescent and, um, and raise their tuition every year. Um, because I think a I think few years down the line, I think colleges will still be relevant, um, but I think you're going to have a massive offering of um, different training programs, like online training programs mm-hmm. that people will uh, it, it adopt. It does feel like colleges are, gonna, are, are facing a crisis, right? These small colleges mm-hmm. are, mm-hmm. like Hampshire College. That's su- surprise, very surprising to me. But, you know, you guys are maybe in the peak of the college-ish era that might be start going away because it is mm-hmm. so expensive and stuff like that. And there's an argument to be made that that's why colleges are so adaptive. Now, by the way, this could be adaptive to any number of things, right? Uh, we need a rock climbing gym. We need, there's all kinds of decisions that colleges make that are, can financially affect people in the future, mm-hmm. Right. Uh, we need a better lunch and food program, and then tuition spikes. You know, so we have to keep that in mind. I, I think that there's not nothing necessarily. That, I think it's more of a question, Elena, and I just I don't know if you want to chime in here. I think can you conceive of something a student body would want to do that wouldn't be good for the college, just like more of an abstract level. 
That's a big question. Um, I think that it's... I, I just want to go back to Maddie, Maddie's yep. point again about like changing... The, co- the college has a historical mission or a historical brand or historical tradition. Some of those college traditions, um, let's take frats, for example, don't work for changing college populations and changing um, attitude. I mean, don't get me wrong. <laughs> frats have been bad for ever. Um, but there is a changing um, recognition and attitude um, and understanding of what's wrong with those. Now, for many colleges, they claim that fraternities are part of their uh, of their college, are part of what they are. Should we not change that because that goes against what the college traditionally has been or might hurt future students attending the college, men who want to join fraternities? I don't think there's anything wrong with adapting the college and its history to fit a changing world and a changing college popu- population. I guess as long as that that's is that reflect the majority of the college or that's where I think it gets maybe a little tricky right yeah well I think we're I think we're kind of um, confusing I think we're we're confusing substance and principle so I mean substantively you can make a judgment on what the colleges should be changing but but I think the principle lies in obviously what amount of agency should the students have like there can be obviously um, an incident where where students make ridiculous requests that would obviously damage university and administration um there needs to be proper procedure for for changing your university like i said it's a moving target and it's there needs to be some proper procedure for i don't think anyone's debating that like i think that and i don't think it's a question of student agency like humans and students have agency that is just a, a fact it's just how much Um, colleges should be responding to it. And yes, colleges should have procedures. They should have processes. But I do not think there is um, anything wrong with the simple fact of student agency and the simple, whether it be quiet on a committee or loud on the green, them asking for what they want and need. It's yes, the college has its processes. They should respond to those how they should. But I, I just Nichols point that students shouldn't have agency. Right. Well, I, I think that's I have to say that's a really strong point, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, if the school doesn't, if the administration can make a credible case and push back, but you, it's hard to say to somebody, hey, don't, you get there's a suggestion box at the door. You know, that's not how power operates. You know, power operates through force, right? We know this, and so. Unless it's like in a rule book or something like that, if they want to occupy a building, there's probably legal consequences to it, right? Mm -hmm. And then that can be pursued. But that's how things move. That's how power operates. Mm -hmm. So I agree, Elena. It seems like Nicholas is saying, uh, and I think he does talk about the administration at one point being really like totally ineffectual in terms of dealing with any uh, requests. That, to me, is an article, right? Mm -hmm. Because... You know, I have to say, I even know this just as a, as a husband and a, with my wife. Like, you have to advocate for what you want. It's not my wife's responsibility to make sure I'm okay and try to figure out what I want. I have to advocate for what I want. So, it's in the similar way, the administration has to be strong enough to say, well, we're not going to do that because it's just too expensive. You know, it's a cool idea, but it's going to sink all the financial aid for the next 10 years or Mm -hmm. we're going to go out of business. Sorry. And I do think it's important to think about, though, how, like, I, I do think that there are some ways that students 
could be advocating that would be way more effective than other ways to advocate. And I think that Maddie and I have both seen this at Mount Holyoke, some completely ineffectual advocacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we can both speak to that because yeah. regardless of whether, like students should have agency, but yes, there are good ways to do it and bad ways to do that. And one of the points Henry made before we came on was like, it's a learning process. We're young and we're learning how to do this. Absolutely. Maddie, did you want to chime in? Yeah, I just think that we're also maybe forgetting the fact that colleges are a business, right? There's economics of education. So, yes, you know, we want our students to have some sort of agency so they can have whatever they desire, right? And we want to make people feel comfortable on campus. But there's also this idea that the administration has to be able to have the backbone to say yes or no. Um, but also be able to protect their institution, right? So, like, they're not trying to make a huge change that the students maybe want that isn't, you know, that's going to deter the incoming class. So you also have to remember that, like, it's not all about, you know, what the students want and get it when they want it. It's also about how an institution can continue to make money and provide the education they want and, you know, kind of work as continue to function as it's functioning. So I think that's also really important to just acknowledge. And that might mean implementing the changes, and that might mean not implementing the changes. It might be implementing some changes. Mm -hmm. But I I do think that young people, students, should be able to find the levers where they find them, basically. Of course, they're legal things. If you do something illegal, then you're going to hit your limits. So it it, you know, seeing this way, the Nichols article feels pretty flawed and, and kind of all over the place. But can we talk about one thing in there, which is the corner, at least the picture and stuff like that, there's pictures of Camille Paglia. Now, I don't know if you know who she is, but she was big when I was in college. Mm-hmm. Like, she had really broken out with this book, Sexual Persona. And she's always been kind of a iconoclastic figure. And she teaches at the Arts College of Philadelphia. And there were students there who wanted her removed from the faculty. Um, and I guess I'm wondering what you guys think of that request, uh, that a tenured professor is, should students be able, they can certainly make the request. Should they have the kind of power to remove tenured faculty? No, Absolutely not. No, <laughs> definitely not. I think it depends on what they've done okay. um, because I think we're seeing an issue and we saw it at Mount Holyoke this year, I believe, with a um, tenured faculty member and a sexual assault issue, um, right? So, and and sure. obviously you can remove a faculty member through tenure if that's a legal issue, but yeah. for certain cases within the Me Too movement, within um, certain kinds of things, right, you can't necessarily prosecute or prosecute those as Title IX. Um, so I think it's a, it's a tricky thing with tenure, these days when, like, no, a a professor for having an, uh, an issue of free speech or talking about something should not <laughs> be well, removed. And well, that's the purpose of tenure. But when we talk about tenure in general, and we talk about, quite frankly, in my experience of college, professors being not great professors and having tenure and have been at the college for a million years and issues of faculty members um, not adapting to current climate, right? Like, how do we evaluate tenure in this day and age. But I'm, can I just stop and try to clarify, if you could clarify, if a professor, how are they going to adapt to current climate? What, what, what ways have you seen your professors not do that, just so that we're clear what we're talking about? Um, 
so I had one issue um, with a, and this is this is more like a, and I wouldn't say this is a total perfect example, um, but I had one issue with a professor um, who who made a comment um, conflating President Trump's um, sexual assault of women um, with Hillary Clinton not visiting Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan. Um, Right. And I, and I spoke to him, but it's certainly, and he should not have been removed for that. And it's important to speak to your professors and make sure they adapt to things. Um, but no, professors should not be removed because of differences in opinion. But I do think it's interesting to look at the tenure system and as a whole, who we're giving tenure, um, who has tenure. Um, it's a big system. And I don't think we can evaluate the whole system of tenure just based on should professors be removed. How would you make him adapt in that case? I made him adapt by speaking to him, and that worked. But in some cases, it doesn't work. Um, and what happens then? See, that's what I don't know. Can tenure people? Can you review them once you have tenure? Can a professor be? But would removed? you review them based on something they said? I think if it's a repeated occurrence. Well, see, that gets to speech, in my opinion. Yeah. I don't know I what the context that. of. The, well, I think it's hard to talk about my own experience because yeah. none of my experiences perfectly adapt to this situation. Okay. Like it's, it's, but there are so many different experiences. Okay. Well, I think I don't think that students should have any say in whether a faculty member is removed because, because students don't bear any of the risk of the consequences of either keeping that professor or removing them, regardless of what the consequences may be. They have no skin in the game, um, and like Maddie says, they're only there for four years. So um, if that university removes a professor, who knows what the consequences or keeps, um, probably the consequences will be worse in that case. Um, but they, if they don't bear any consequences, they shouldn't have any say in whether they're removed or not. Yeah. And I would agree with Elena on the fact of like, definitely with that professor yeah. who committed the sexual assault. Okay. That's obviously a huge issue. And well, that's a legal thing. And right? Yes. Right. But and it's it, a legal thing. However, for removing some year, someone or reviewing someone for their tenure after something they said, I think that's absolutely absurd because that that right there is kind of taking away from their ability for free speech. Like, that's such a huge issue, I think, on campus because you have so many people from so many different areas of the world, right? Like, people are coming from all over the place. They have different ideas. They have different concepts. They've had different lived experiences, right? And they come together, and you might not agree with the person who you're sitting next to in class who's from England. You know what I mean? So, Or, or Mississippi. Or even Mississippi, right. If or we're, five years from now. Abs absolutely. Right, so, because w w I just want to say that... When you open the door to it, then, th you know, the scene changes. And then you're like, oh, my God, you know, now, now that my professors are being removed because they said something. Right. You know, like, I always try to think of myself, what would I do if I was teaching history in Mississippi, you know, in rural Mississippi? Like, who's that teacher? Um, because I, I, want to, I want to protect the speech of my kids in my class in the high school, no matter where they're from. And I know that there's some teacher down in Mississippi who's trying to do the same thing. He's trying to protect liberal kids in their class the same way I might want to protect someone who's conservative in my class. 
because I feel like that's my job is to protect the full conversation. So hypothetical scenario going on this tenure thing. What if, for example, a professor repeatedly um, did not refer to students with their correct pronouns? Right. Theoretically, you could say that's an issue of speech, that they don't believe Mm -hmm. through political means that that is a... um, correct thing to do to refer to a student with pronouns um that okay, with their preferred yeah, pronouns can you well, should you review that tenure of that yeah. professor well, mm-hmm. well that was pretty much the whole canada bill well, c16 thing right that, that was, was. The, yes that yeah. was the bill yeah right um do you are you guys familiar with that no. so there was uh go ahead yeah you uh, probably know better yeah than I do, so actually. of course it was um it was in canada um bill c16 um, was was basically instantiating a clause of um, protecting gender identity and expression in um, in how do I say it in how how one refers to himself. Okay, um, so basically, I think part of the code, which is what a lot of people had the issue of, was that um, if you didn't refer to somebody as their pronoun, that they wanted. Um, it could be pursued criminally, um, which there was massive backlash, and um, it basically made a celebrity out of Jordan Peterson, like we talked about before. He basically became a celebrity overnight because of it. Um, he, he he said essentially, like, I can I'll call people by the pronoun they prefer, but right, not because right. the state tells exactly, me exactly exactly right so, because that's a state government limitation on speech well it's not even a limitation it's saying you have to say this at it's it's not saying like you can't say fire in a movie theater it's saying when this when x occurs you have to say y and um and he was very outspoken against that and which i mean with good reason like you you don't want somebody telling you what you have to say but i think the professor example is a different one Mm -hmm. i think when you are a professor at a college and it's a little bit different if you're a teacher in a public school. The rules are a little yeah. bit different. But if you're a professor in a college, part of calling students by their preferred pronouns is about making the academic space inclusive and accepting and accessible to everyone. Yeah, I would say so it's, it's different than an behavior. average citizen. I certainly wouldn't like it. Right. You know, and so I would can object. that, should if that If someone didn't call you by your pronoun. Someone call me ma'am. Yeah, you know, sure. I'd be like, what's going on here? Sure. You know, that would be that would be right. very assaultive. Right, but that's a contract between you and who you're talking to. It it, it shouldn't yeah. be about the state. Well, but okay, should the professor be reviewed? Yes, uh, Lane is talking about can Mount Holyoke call the professor in and say, listen, um, this has nothing to do with the state of Massachusetts mm-hmm. or the federal government, but what's going on? And um, what what recourse does it have? Now, my guess is that's like in the contracts of the professors. Like right. That's like something I don't know about. But like tenure has a very specific... Yeah, I don't know how the arbitration works with tenure, but it seems as though the, the university, if, if it's hurting their image and it's hurting the amount of students that it's applying to their university, then you must have. I'm not sure, but that would be my assumption. But you do see, now let's be careful now, because you, you just signed off on that, but that can become larger, Right. right. This is the problem. And we know this about the free speech debate, right? As soon as you do anything except mm-hmm. yelling fire in the movie theater, now speech is like, well, uh, now it's more than just about proper pronouns. I don't want you talking about this. You can't talk about this in class anymore. And that's where that's why it becomes such a hard issue because yeah. you're saying, what's wrong with change? And of course, or being by your proper pronoun but as soon as you start mandating these mm-hmm. things speech starts evaporating a little bit yeah. and and 
times will change. And then you might not be so happy about how they change. And then the institution of tenure protects mm-hmm. your worldview. It doesn't, uh, it's, do you see what I'm saying? I do, but, th- and this is the really scary part about this conversation. It's like, do we then take that as like no change? How do we, mm-hmm. how do we regulate change to be safe change? Yeah. Well, through more speech, I would say, rather than, rather than legislating speech. Like, yeah, the speech thing is so hard because once you, once you legislate any form of speech, there's so many unintended consequences that arise that it's just, you can't avoid it. So, yeah, I would say, I would say change happens through more speech rather than, hmm. rather than like, because, I mean, things are complicated. People aren't perfect, and it's better to point out their flaws rather than to tell them that they can't say something. Which is what you did with your professor. You yeah. had a conversation. Right. right. I, would say I, you would I, I don't that see you as an enemy of speech. No, and I think that's the really best clear. way to do it. I think I'm just an, an enemy of being afraid of change. And because I, mm. I just think that change has to happen and it's wonderful that we're having this conversation, but we well, can't be afraid of it. Well, that's that's from my point about Bastille Day at the beginning, right? The Bastille Day became something it really didn't want to be. But seen in a larger perspective, change happened. So, you know, when you're not passionate for change, it's easy to say, you know, you have to wait your turn or you have to mm-hmm. get in line or you can't pull that lever. But when you want change, at a certain point, you start breaking rocks, Right. I think one of my biggest things, I mean, obviously, Elaine, your your scenario is really hard to deal with also because it's fairly new on the scene, right? So that's like something that a lot of people don't necessarily even know how to decipher. Um, but I would say that going back to what we were talking about before about like whether they can just say something and they should be reviewed, um, I feel like that's so dangerous because once you review someone just strictly off of something they said because you didn't agree with them, they have a de- everyone's entitled to their own opinion, right? That's like the one thing I think people are really, really entitled to. And so once you go ahead and do that, then you're opening this door to kind of funnel in your own ideas, right? So you review this professor who disagrees with you, and now he's then say he gets fired, right? He gets replaced by a professor who maybe you agree with more. That's taking away, as far as I'm concerned, of your college experience. You're not going to college to sit around in a group of people and shake hands and say, oh my God, yeah, I thought that too. You're going there to be challenged. You're going there to think about what you're doing. You're going to look at different perspectives, different angles. If you're all sitting around a table agreeing, then what is the point of the conversation? As far as I'm concerned, like you need to have some sort of, some sort of challenge in the classroom, and that's the way you get, you get an education. Yeah, and I think, well, it's not even really, like, professors saying things. It's generally students. Like, professors don't say controversial things. Professors, professors dance around controversial things and avoid them basically like the plague. Absolutely. I think it's, I think it's more with students because I think, I mean, the, the data on, on, on professor um, political bias is, like, completely clear. Like, there aren't any conservative professors so I mean, I think it's well. A, no, 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 no. That, I mean, just don't speak in absolutes. Well, as close as you can get. Okay. okay. There's in in relation to how many um, far left professors there are. It's well, especially in the valley. Like, let's also acknowledge that yeah. where we are right now. Right. We're okay. In Maybe the in the south, states. there's a higher. But like, but like something I've learned is like there was a study done, and 20 percent of social science professors are are outspoken Marxists. 
which yeah. is, I mean, that's a high percentage of a very, sure. a very far left leaning ideology. So it, it's not, it's not that there's no conservative professors, but it's, they're hard to find. Yeah. Listen, I actually want to take a quick break and then we'll start with that when we come back okay. because I do want to explore so what, what you're saying is it's not really the professors, it's the students now. And I do want to ex- explore the chilling, what we might call a chilling effect. Sure. Okay, so we'll do that in just a second, and uh, we'll be back. <laughs> 